a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. You're listening to a Zero Limits podcast brought to you by Two Ravens Tactical and Iron and Lead Cartel. Hosted by Australian veterans, we're here to give you the motivation for you to complete any goal you set your mind to. On these podcasts, we're going to be speaking to high-charging people with the zero-limit mindset that never say no. Let's go. Listeners, on uh, today's Zero Limits podcast, uh, doing a little bit something different. Co-host uh, Shane is not here, of course. He's probably out unloading boats, as Steve on the at the ports in Newcastle. So uh, I've actually got one of our uh, previous uh, episode guests, Adrian Humphreys. So he's going to be here today having a chat. How you doing, mate? How are you? I'm well. I'm good. It's good to be back. Yeah, good, mate. I'm, it's good to have you back on. Today, we're actually going to be speaking to uh, another mutual mate of ours, Adrian Sutter. He is also a Australian veteran. He served in uh, 1RR, a shitty battalion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> straight, in. uh, straight into it. Um, and now he was the f- is the founder of uh, MC of uh, Swiss 8, which is um, basically a mental health uh, organisation uh, charity. Yeah, it's a, a proactive mental health charity. Yeah, gotcha. And obviously founded by uh, veterans. So we'll just start off straight from the start, mate. How are you? And uh, Fantastic, yeah. mate. Thanks for having me. Love the studio. Yeah, yeah, a bit of a makeshift studio. It's, it's been good. good. It's good. It's recorded, than- recorded everything here, really. Far better than our one. <laughs> There's no echo. Like We've got it. some beers in the fridge too. Oh, good. So, mate, let's just start straight off from the start. Where'd you grow up? Right, mate, I grew up in Newcastle. Um, I, well, Dudley. I, I was born around here. Um, went to Dudley School. Went to Whitebridge High School, the School of Hard Knocks, as, <laughs> as you know already. Um which kind of, it, I mean, that's got really nothing to do with the story that we're going to go through today. But going going to places rather than going, I, I tried out to go to Maryweather High School. It's a selective smart kid high school. Hmm. Um, I don't think I got accepted. I can't remember. It's too long ago. Too many head knocks. Um, but then then went to Whitebridge, and Whitebridge at the time was was considered a bit of a school of hard knocks. Like I was a bit of a rough around the edges dude. So were all the boys I grew up with. Um, growing up on the coast in Newey, I mean, it's it's that's one of the things I love looking back at it going. Newcastle at the time was very tribal and beach culture. Um, it's got a little bit of a gang element to it. Like young boys, they look for for purpose and tribe. And, and around the beaches, if you grow up around the coast, you always kind of get into a clique and you want to keep 
only locals on your beach, yeah. or anyone who's not from Andy. Yeah. And that kind of started to develop this, this idea of, of wanting to fit into a tribe. And when you're young, mate, like most of the boys are, you just want to be the, the, the toughest motherfucker you can be if you're growing up in a spot like that. Um, and, and that obviously led me into wanting to join the army. And that was, that was one of the things that when I was looking at why did I, when people ask me all the time, like, why did you join the military? And everyone's got all their reasons like, oh, you want to serve, you want to protect people, blah, blah, blah. And there's always elements of that. But we've got to be realistic and go, well, there's 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 a massive movie industry out there that romanticizes your idea yeah, exactly, of being the yeah. baddest motherfucker on the planet. Yeah. And 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 when you're 16, I'm like, that's what I wanted to be. Anyway, not everyone who goes to Whitebridge High School wants to just get out and be, <laughs> be a bad dude. But um, yeah, like I said, very, very different mindset on on the world and on life now. But that was that that kind of mindset came from growing up around on the coast um and, and going to Whitebridge High School. Yeah. Um how big is your family? Um, shrinking by the day, unfortunately. My yeah. family gets cancer like the best of them. Um, but I I had an older sister. Mm-hmm. Um, she passed away. Actually, we can go deep into yeah, that. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I've got a younger brother who who now works for Swiss 80. He's okay. a software engineer. And you all went to the same school, Whitebridge? No, Ben actually went to Merriweather. Like, he was okay. the smartest. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because he is the chief uh, technology officer, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, of yeah, course. Right. He, and I, I remember when I first met him, when he was talking a lot about apps and stuff. I'm like, mate, calm down. Yeah. We're infantry guys. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep it simple, mate. Where's the abacus? Right, we can draw with crayons, um, but he puts everything's in ones and zeros, mate, and and makes my ideas or, or our boys. We get the boys together, throw ideas around, and like we want to achieve X. What do you do in the software space to to make that happen? And he does it, websites, apps, anything. Yeah, right. So how were you at school? Were you uh, like academically, did you do all right or were you, were you a little dirtbag as well? Cause you- no, mate. I, um, numbers, I think it comes from my dad's side. Like I, I love um, writing and, and, and kind of art stuff now. Back in, in high school, I was all numbers, like physics and chemistry and, and, and like higher unit mathematics just came naturally. Uh, and I didn't have to study a lot. Mm. Like I was, I, was, I was kissed on the dick when I was from – say year seven to year 10, didn't do a lot of homework, but numbers just came naturally. So when I got to year 11 and 12 and I had to pick subjects of what I wanted to do, because I was going to go, ideally my goal in life was to go and fly fighter planes. Um, and so in year 10, I applied to the Air Force to become a, a fighter pilot. And, and that would dictate what I did in year 11 and 12 to then go to uni and, and become a pilot. Um, and at the time, you needed to be a jockey to fit in the cockpit. And they came back and they said, look, your, your year 10 grades are good to go, but you're not going to fit. The only you can fly cargo planes, and I was like, "Fuck no!" I'll just join the army as an infantry soldier. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was I was doing I was doing like year eleven and twelve. Um, year ten went really well. Yeah. School certificate. Year eleven and twelve picked all the hardest subjects. Um, when I found out I wasn't going to be a pilot, around the same time I found out I could get a Swiss passport because my old man's Swiss, and I'm like. Well, and, and, and I got started getting picked in representative rugby teams and my ambitions to be a smart kid went out the window and I just started playing rugby, drinking piss and getting ready to travel the world for a couple of years once I finished high school. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you, my HSC didn't, I didn't do well at yeah. all. At all, yeah. Essentially, again, like I think we spoke about this on yeah. your podcast, Adrian, you know about a common theme between infantry guys not being the best at school and not Mis- passing and just being, you know, in in some way failures. Like or I'm sure your teacher said, "You'll never do this. You'll never get to do that." And I think that's a lot of part of the motivation why we ended up joining the infantry. I got told I was never going to be good in the infantry or even join the army. Like they just laughed at me. The kid, yeah. my teacher at school, I'm yeah. like. You're the first one I'm going to show. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, and that that's kind of flows on. Like you, I, I 
I don't know what it was. I, I look at like a, a, the psychology of the type of blokes that join combat corps as well, um, especially with Swiss Eight. And and most of the boys that I've spoken to, they they had issues as kids, either with learning or with family, and they they didn't find like where they belonged in society. And that whether or not they felt that at the time, like that's a common theme now with most of the lads looking back. Um, but I, I think one of the things that I developed at that young age was I was. And this this sounds arrogant, but I was good at most things I did as a kid. Mm. And you can be. You like you can be good at sport. You can be good at school up to a certain age without trying too hard. Like if you're just naturally um, gifted or, or, or good at it, and then you get to the point where you have to. If you want to play pro rugby, you got to start training. That's got to be your life. If you want to go to uni and do X, Y, Z, you got to start studying. And, and I just didn't. And that's when I started getting teachers saying like, "Hey, you, you you're not living up to your potential." And that's what fucked with me for the longest because everything from from that day on through the rest of my life up until now, the thing that gives me the anxiety the most is fear of not reaching max potential. Yeah. Uh, and, and, again, that's that's one thing that drew me to the Army. It's like everything you do, according to the TV ads anyway, every day is going to be a new challenge, something that you can overcome and become good at. And and it was for a bit, but those those recruitment ads are a little bit yeah strange. well at least you didn't join the air force that's probably it's, it's funny it's funny we talk about the air force i went flying yesterday with uh, i had a chat with matt hall we had him on episode 17 i think it was i went flying up in his plane yesterday i think i oh, saw you I, I saw your facebook post yeah, yeah that was, was me i was at Maryland was me, the beach yeah. yesterday and i saw yeah, that was him me going straight up yeah we're flying upside, upside down, down. yeah that was us yeah oh, i spew my guts <laughs> up Mate, i know he knows his yeah. shit right but i, I just walked onto to with the beach and I see the Red Bull plane. Yeah. Um, it was flying low and then he's gone up. And like, if he's going to do a full backflip, I'm not sure he's going to pull this off. We yeah. might witness battle hit the ocean. <laughs> but he just went up and just yeah. sat upside down for oh, a bit. Man, <laughs> it was it, mental. Like, I'm glad I'm not in the Air Force because I couldn't be a pilot. I spewed. I spewed yeah. after the end of it. Oh, yeah. He's just doing stalls and. Oh, man. Yeah, it was, it was mental. It was mental. Um, so, what year? What year did you finish school? 2003, I did my HSC. Then um, off the back of that, I, I worked as a concreter for like four months wow. to save money to go over, <laughs> to go and travel. Um, and this, I mean, this, I, I always knew at this stage, I knew I was going to come back at some stage to join the army, but I, I'm very nomadic. So I, I just want to be on the road all the time. Um, I hate being stuck in one spot. And so I bought a one-way ticket. Um, I was going to go... Oh, we ended up, I ended up going with two mates. Um, one of the boys came home a bit early, but we were saving up money to go. And then one of the boys had to get knee surgery. So he spent all of his money on knee surgery. And he's like, oh, I've only got two grand. I'm like, yeah, that's heaps, mate. That's all I've got as well. I've been, I've been working as a concreter for four months, just spending all my money on the piss. And then had two grand to leave Australia in 2003, uh, 2004, um, with a one-way ticket to Europe. And it was, it was unreal. Like I wouldn't have do it. I would not do it any other way. Yeah, right. Like mostly, most of the time, especially when you're young, you want to be comfortable. You want to have enough cash, so you go over and you're like, I, I can survive for a few months. We spent that two grand in the first month. And me and him were we got down to about fifty pounds in in the bank in the first month. Um, and luckily, we got jobs. I mean, Aussies back in the day in traveling Europe, you can you can get a job anywhere, washing dishes or pulling beers. Um, but it was it was sick, and that was me. I finished high school two thousand three, just went traveling for nearly two years. Yeah, right. All over Europe. Fuck, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it was good fun. Good fun. Learned, learned how to be poor, which was a big one, which is a, oh, I'm a fan of now. That's a skill set that most people spend their whole life stressing about getting the job that pays the most money so that they can buy houses and cars that they yeah. don't need. And I got really comfortable at a young age having no money and not wanting to ask mum and dad for money. Um, 
And mate, there was there was nights where me and Phil, Phil Hayton, the bloke I travelled with, were like sleeping in parks and just being. And what year? 18, 19? 18, 18 at the time, yeah. <laughs> I mean, back, Gap year. back then, mate, if you've got 50 quid, like if you've got 50 pounds, oh, yeah. mate, you're not spending it on no, a hotel. That's no, like, that's yeah. beer money for tomorrow. Yeah, that's it, yeah. I'm sleeping and in it'll last, it'll last a few days too. 50 <laughs> exactly. bucks will last, you know, five days easily. Absolutely. You, know, you can stretch it. Um, but no, that was it. And then, yeah, we travelled for a few years. I won't go into the stories of travelling, mate. There was We got arrested a few times. Was a, we were young, bit of shenanigans in, in, in Europe, um, but then came back and joined the army straight So how long did you spend over in Europe? No, it was just under two years. I two think. years? Yeah. I, so 2006. Oh, he came back in 2006? Uh, yeah, wait. No. So we came back at the end of 2005. So we did um, all of 2004, most of 2005 in Europe, um, came back and then joined the Army in 2006. The rest is history. I can't believe you spent two years in Europe. That's like the worst gap year ever. Well, mate, no, it was in- so good. Like the, like I said, the first month we ran out of money. Uh, and so we were working. We went to Newquay from London. I mean, London was expensive. Even, yeah, even back yeah, it then. is. Um, and we were living in – I didn't know it at the time. Like I tried I tried to – I consider myself a fairly like proactive, forward-thinking, planning person. So mm. I, I wanted to – I love travelling without an itinerary. Don't get me wrong. Like I love just rocking up somewhere and going, what are we doing? Who knows? Let's do whatever. But when when we're going on a trip like that with a one-way ticket, I wanted to be kind of organised. So I started looking into um, share accommodation in different suburbs of London so that we had somewhere yeah, to go yeah, as yeah. soon as we got yeah. there. And I had no idea what suburbs were. I, I pretty much booked us a fucking – rented us a house in their equivalent of punch bar. <laughs> it was like ru- the was roughest Birmingham part somewhere? of London. Oh, Walthamstow it was <laughs> called. <laughs> oh, I can't remember. I don't know what it's like now. Beth- but Bethnal it's where Green. <laughs> Bethnal Green's another one. Yeah, I see. I don't remember half of London. I just know this. That was like the immigrant town. Yeah, which is like the equivalent of Western Sydney. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the people, but if you want to get in a fight or you want to get your shit stolen, like that's probably the place to go in London. Um, and we were there for a, a bit over a month, and then we ran out of money even for for Walthamstow. So we went to New Quay, which is like yeah, their equivalent yeah. of the Gold Coast. That's yeah. where everyone goes for schoolies. We didn't know that either. We rocked up, um, got jobs in a pub straight away, washing dishes, and just spent the summer in New Quay, hanging out with eighteen year old. British chicks on, on schoolies. Um, and then we went all over the place. Like we, uh, the next winter, cause I had a Swiss passport, I started making a few calls. Um, and we did the standard thing. Like we'd apply for these jobs that were f- we'd never mm. been qualified in. Like yeah. I, I applied for a job in a five star hotel as a waiter. Right. And you just write your resume and you get your mate's phone numbers from Australia and you brief them in, you give them a script. And so when they get a phone call, it's like, yeah, this is Johnny Smith from. Yeah, he made, from the, he's from, the best waiter out there. Yeah, exactly. Remember that movie Home Alone? That was the guy. Yeah. That, was him. that was him in it. Exactly. <laughs> and I rock up the first day. And I mean, we uh, back, I don't know what it's like now because this is like 10, 15 years ago or long, no, fuck longer. Um, but back in the day, you'd rock up as an Aussie and they're yeah. like, all right, these people know hospitality because you're just friendly to everyone yeah. and you tick, tick, tick. But a five star hotel in a Swiss. Ski village, that's a different story, mate. Like, they, they brought out a fish knife, and I'd never seen one. And then I was like, I had to ask them, I'm like, what is this? And straight away, they've just seen straight through my resume. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. mate, you said you'd be working at all these hotels, you know what a fish knife is. But it was sick. Like, that, that, that's the one point in life. Everyone asks, like, you look back now, and everyone goes, what, what's the one point in life that you remember being the happiest? And I'm like, it was, I woke up in bed in, so this five star hotel on the mountains in this ski village in Switzerland that there's, no cars, so you got to get the cable car up there because um, it's in on the snow, mm-hmm. right? The the chairlift, I could jump. 
the hotel had a mini hotel at the back for all the workers because it was all seasonal staff. I was on the second floor, so I could open my window, put my snowboard on, jump out the window and snowboard down to the chairlift <laughs> and then head off. And that was me every day, like wake up in the morning, go to work for breakfast. All day I got off to snowboard, nighttime we're doing dinner. And I was just like, when people ask me what the happiest you've ever been, like, I woke up one day as an 18-year-old and this is this is kind of forethought that I didn't think I had or foresight. And I was like, I woke up one day as an 18-year-old in Switzerland and I was like, this is the freest I'm ever going to be. And and still now, like after all the things we've done, looking back, I'm like, that's the dream. Yeah. Living in a place Just, with yeah. fucking clean air, cool people, didn't have a lot of money, didn't matter because I was fucking in nature all day, every day yeah. snowboarding. I'm like, it was unreal. Yeah, right. Sick. Up. Hey. Oh, family military history. Oh, sorry. Sorry, I thought you were looking at the um. No, no, no I'm like, uh, with, like with the mil- with the military because history is my thing. Mm. Just to take it back to the to school, I remember getting into my HSC final HSC exam for modern history, and we'd gone over Hitler and the lead up to World War Two all of that year. But I didn't like the questions. I went, "These are shit," and I flicked through the page to another completely separate topic, which was the Vietnam War, which I was all over, mm. and it was a question about the lead up to the Tet Offensive, and I went, I'll answer this one instead because I fucking know all about this anyway. And that was the highest mark I got out of my entire HSC was this fucking random bloody question that wasn't even supposed to be answering. (laughs) So to that end, yeah, like joining up and heading into the military, did you have any family history that influenced? Not really, no. I um, I mean, my dad's dad, Switzerland's still got conscription, like still to this day. It's it's, it's, it's everyone, most, most young lefty woke, bloody Swiss kids these days try and find a way to dodge doing their two years as a reservist. But um, if you're at uni, you don't have to go, or I think there's another excuse. But most blokes have to do two, two years military. Um, so my dad's dad was in the Army. I don't know for how many years. I think he was in there for a while doing in, in artillery, and mm. he would have been around World War II era. Um, obviously, Switzerland don't get in fights, so yeah. he didn't have to do anything. But – that's that's the only – and I never spoke to him about it. I didn't really know about it until I joined the Army. He, he told me one day that he used to be in the Army, but, again, Switzerland's a bit different. My old man never was. Uh, Mum's side, I, I don't even know. Like, I know her dad. He was a coal miner his whole life. There was – I don't know what it was. I, I, I do. I think it was mostly the the romanticised narrative mm. that, that the media pushes out to us that, that got me excited about joining the military. Yeah. Because um, I didn't have any – Family. Mm. Yeah. And definitely at that time too, and uh, you know, we all joined pretty much, you know, around the s- same time. Obviously it was post 9-11 as well. Mm. So that was kind of a, that was the reason why I joined because I just thought, fuck, must be war. Yeah. We must be getting to go to wherever we're going to go and kill some bad people. Yeah. So yeah, uh, mine, I, I think um, Timor had a big, bigger impact on me because at the time, like 9-11, I forget how old we were. It was like year 10-ish mm. around then, maybe year 9, year 10. Um and that, I, I mean, I was, I did have a goal to join the military, but that didn't ignite a fire in me that goes, hey, I've got to go over and fucking fight um, terrorists. Because I, I wasn't really, I was more worried about drinking piss and playing rugby because I was yeah. still so young. Yeah. Um, but then when I got back from traveling and I actually was seriously, I was ready to join the military. And then all the stuff, the, the second round of Timor kicking off um, kind of happened. And I was like, fuck, I should have joined the army last year. I could be over there already. Um, not knowing how, how deployment yeah. cycles work. And then obviously, I, I, I um, got in in August, 
went through basic training, finished because the the tempo at the time, end of two thousand and six, like as you boys know, that's when you joined two thousand six. Yeah, yeah, yep, middle yep. of two thousand and six. So I, I, our my platoon, well, there was two platoons, our sister platoon as well from Kapuka, um, went to the most. They were ninety nine percent. There was about four people that weren't infantry, so everyone went to Singo together. Um, halfway through Singo, they're like, "Hey, we've got instructors coming down from Townsville. We're going to pick you boys up and take you to Townsville and finish your training up there because." the deployment cycle's too hectic and they need people. Hmm. Um, and me and like five other dudes marched off, uh, marched out of, of IETs and got picked up with the CEO. He's like, you're going straight on a plane home. you got to have a week off because you're going to Timor the week after. No way. So I had no – I mean, it was magic, mate. I, I don't know if you boys ever did Timor, but – Yeah, I did, yeah. Timor, straight out of IET, you learn you learn good stuff at basic training, yeah. but you don't really learn – it's, it's like you, you get force-fed through a fire hose. Of it's course. Like, learn all this shit. And so you learn all the what, but you don't really learn the why and the, the how to mould ideas together to, to do your job properly on the ground. And I'm like, if I didn't go to Timor, that would have taken me years to develop. But I, I got to embed. I was the only new dude in a section that had been together for a while, which meant I got ostracised, which is fucking fantastic. I think it's I think it's needed. You need hazing in a, in a male-dominant infantry kind of core. But I jumped straight in this unit and – on the ground in Timor. There's no real threat. Like at the time I thought there was, still walked out first patrol scared that some dude was going to shoot me with a bow and arrow or something. But <laughs> Blow dart. But you just, yeah. But you just learn. You learn how sections patrol properly. Yeah. You learn you, not not the textbook model, but the actual on the ground model. And, yeah. and that for mine was the best um, training pathway to go Kapuka, Singo, straight into Timor for six, supposed to be six months. It's almost like confirming your training. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Confirming your training and, and learning what, they teach you as, as a black and white exactly, SOP, yeah. but but how to do it yeah. in, in the field in, in the real yeah. world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um and, and not, that, not having really having a knockoff either. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. not going yeah, not that's fucking completely immersed in yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and learning like orders. You you get people deliver orders to you at Singo, and you're like, cool. I'm not really paying attention. I know exactly what we need to do anyway because we've done 20 lessons on it. But you go on overseas. Timor's fairly low tempo, but someone's given orders. You got to pay attention because you're going out in the real world to actually do that job in in half an hour or an hour. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I, I thought it was magic and we were lucky. Gene Cowan, I don't know if you remember him, Gene yeah, Cowan. Yeah, he was uh, one of my sergeants. In, uh, he was my sergeant in Bravo Company. Yeah. So when he- I was, When I was with t- in, in Timor. Yeah, right. Yeah. He, um, cause one hour out was short of full tracks. He was a full track at the time and, and, um, he was my first section commander and he was fucking hard, man. Like and he, he is a tough dude. Yeah. But I look back at, I even speak to him on social media. Yeah, so I spoke to him the other day. I'm like, mate. I, I appreciate and I can thank you for, for ev- being that rough and being that tough on us because that developed people into proper 100%, soldiers. 100%, mate. And he was, yeah, as you said, like he was one of those guys that was just, you just knew, you knew he knew his shit and the way he did it, it was, the way he trained you, he wasn't telling you, you know, you're a fuck with your shit, you're this. He'd show you how to do it. Yeah. If you fucked up, you'd show you how to do it again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was just continual training. And that's the difference between a boss and a and a leader. You know, they, that transition to the civilian world as well. You know, a boss will tell you what to do and not show you how to do it. A leader will show you, probably lead the way, show you how to do it, and then, you know, train you on it. Yeah. And he was the epitome of that. And and if if you don't retain knowledge, a good leader turns around and goes, well, I didn't teach you properly. And you get to a point. I mean, the military is a military. There is a lot of people there that are just fucking idiots. So you're going to get to a point in that where no matter how well, like if Gene Cowan was delivering this information, there was me and one other um, dude came into a platoon and and he wasn't as, he, he didn't pick some stuff up. Um, 
And he gets to a point where it's like he, he blows up, like most section commanders do. They, they go, yeah. I've told you four times, cunt, let's fucking yeah. fix this. But other than that, like it was the, the model of if you didn't learn it properly, I'm going to find a better way or a new way to teach you. And, uh, mate, it was good. I, I rated him. I rated yeah. him as, as a no, leader. definitely, definitely. Right, the opposite. Moving into the SIG squadron, and I was thinking of this certainly once I got into fire at the time, um, I didn't get ridden. We were all the same age bracket. Like my first deck commander – or eight deck commanders. Deck commanders were like I was nineteen, and the deck commander was twenty-one. Um, I turned twenty, and he's still twenty-one, and we're, we're a two-man debt in SIGs. Like there was no, um, I didn't get an education in infantry and the structure of the chain of command of the military until I got to fire after selection. Because up to that point, the SIGs was this weird fucking enmeshed world of specialists being led by officers who are generally essentially managers. They're not leading or teaching you. You've just described them. And um, there were some pretty fucking, in hindsight, weak NCOs as well that mm. did were not interested whatsoever in getting ahead of the game or getting you ahead of the game, instructing and teaching and whatever else. Also because I think they didn't know half the shit themselves in hindsight. But, um, yeah, I had the opposite. And I was fucking oath, man. It proves your point. Like you're weaker for it. Later on in yeah. your fucking career, you're weak yeah. for it if you don't receive it straight away. Just to cut in there, do you like, you know, we come from that infantry background, obviously, before you become, when SF, you know, you, you carried handbags. Yeah. Do you think it was a lot different because it was the handbag side of thing, the signal side of thing? I that think it was weren't the, as strict as. It was, no, nah, it was the squadron and it was the dynamic. Was it just, it so was it was just the, that? It was that dynamic in that squadron and specifically in that radio troop, which is what we had yeah, at, right. at that time, um, looking back. Because your other, I got attached to 104 SIG squadron back then. I think they were called. They were one brigade signal squadron. So they were all, um, I got attached to them for about a week and a half during an exercise up in Shoalwater Bay. And I went from this Pogue Central fuck fight to you're the fourth man in a debt. No, third man in a debt now and wearing an ACV and we move every time. One armored fucking mm. regimental headquarters moves and fuck, mate. I, I'd be, I was trying to take it all in, probably like you've described yourself, mate. You're just taking it all in. It's a completely mm. fucking new way of operating. So, and it just, every SIG squadron had a respective role in the brigade that it was. Um, so, those northern ones back then, like your 104. 103 in Townsville, that, that was like where you went to do some – or Force as well. Yeah. Norforce was full fucking SIG patrolling. Um, they were the units you went to if you wanted to get fucking squared away. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, that's where I would have gone to one of them. Yeah, right. Um, so Adrian, oh, we've got two Adrians here. Yeah. Uh, so that's um, – so 2006, that was Timor, 2007? Seven. 2007. Seven. Yeah. What yeah. You, when was that? Like what, what From, months? So – We uh, must have replaced you then. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you and Tommy Saunders was like, well, yeah. we were over at the same time. So we only took a comp. Oh, we had two companies. Yeah. And then there was an o- there was a big overlap. I- it was either, I think we took over from you. Maybe, no, maybe I-, I come back in with Bravo Company, fuck, did June, you, I think. Did you do Battle Group Faithful? Like that first? No, 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 no. I had a parachute accident. So I was in uh, rehab platoon. I don't know if I said it. I had surgery, yeah. We were doing hard point security on a. I might have said it on the last podcast. We yeah. were on hard point security at Alcateri's joint, just pretty much body, like um, security guards. Um, this patrol's gone past us, and the fucking seco in it was really flustered and just like itching. He was just, I could, we could see he was agitated, so we wanted to hit him up. Do you want some jackrats or anything like that? And he's going, nah, it's fucking all right. He started sort of venting to our team commander there on the gate as his section just filed past either side of the road and he just said to him, I've got fucking dudes from one, two and three RR in this fucking section. <laughs> and we were like, wow. <laughs> and that, that was the fuck fight. If ever there was a fuck fight that was Battle Group Faithful, that fucking exemplified yeah. it. Yeah, right. <laughs> dudes from three different fucking battalions coming together yeah. once. 
Right. It's, it's like what you're talking about with, with yeah, having yeah. having a veteran leading a group of civilians. Like it works, but if you have mixed the actual section, it doesn't. So we had Gene Cowan from Three RR yeah. as our commander. The whole section was from One RR. Yeah. That worked. That worked because he, he's in a leadership position and he, he is separated from the lads. Mm. When you got the, the lads, need to know each other. Yep. Yeah. Um. And I was new, so I was still learning, getting to know people. They all they all knew each other well, and I was the one that had to kind of figure out the way to, to fit into that section and it worked. But, yeah, if you've got people from all over the place, good luck. All over the place was pretty much the motto of Battle Group. Yeah. Started battle but, no, we were, we were there at the same – I think we were there at the same time. I was definitely there at the same time as – Yeah. We, you know, retrans up on the mountain. It's kind of a two-week holiday. You go out there and you – I'll actually I'll probably have to bleep that name out too. Oh, yeah. Retrans, right. you mean? Uh, no, yeah, <laughs> retrans. <laughs> yeah. Rondo. Well, I'm a Rondo. Beefing out. Um, but I get up there and – there's a big sud as a fuckwit carved yeah. into the into the table. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. no one knows that I'm even in yeah. the army except for one yeah. dude. And that motherfucker was up there the week before. Yeah, me. right. But I mean that the, the positive spin, right? Like every, everything that especially in infantry battalions, when you're the new dude, like it's all about street credibility. All these blokes have been in for two, three, four years. And we rock up at this retrans. Most of them, it's their first trip too. Yep. We rock up at retrans, and there's a big the name of the newest fucking lid in the sections carved into the table. I'm like that. That boosted my street yeah. cred with the boys. It's it's like, street cred. Yeah. Did you make that happen. <laughs> yeah, Rondo. Yeah, right, eh? Well, um, so 2007. How long did you spend total, Timor? So it was a, it was a six month trip that yep. I went on. Um, we got Rockle last, so I did four months and Rockle um, from Timor back in Australia. First night, unfortunately, I got in a bit of trouble. We got back again, still, still the new dude trying to prove. Yeah. In my mind, got to prove yeah. yourself in this section. We all went out in the piss. The minute you get off the plane, went home, had a shower, went out in the piss. Townsville, Flinders Street. <laughs> most people know it. Um, and we ended up going to the bank. I think the bank's a, a nightclub. I'm pretty sure it's shut down now. Yeah. But um, we're in the bank late at night, drink all the piece. Most of the boys are starting to fizzle out and, and head home. Um, but one of the more senior dudes was was regularly the last man standing. And so it ended up being me and him because the oldest dude, the most senior dude, and the newest dude, I felt like I had to stick around till, till the end. Um, and this group of chicks come in. He starts hitting on one of them the dance floor. This big group of, of um, locals come in. And one of them must have been his missus. Went straight up to my mate, punched him, knocked him out straight away. <laughs> I'm like, fucking right, oh. So I had myself, no one else around, and like four or five, maybe so that's a long time ago, maybe six dudes. In hindsight, not the smartest move. <laughs> I felt the need to defend myself. So I grabbed the closest thing, which was a schooner glass, and I pegged it at the dude. And then luckily, late at night, drunk as fuck, it's still, I could still throw. Hit him straight in the forehead and just cut his face, which is, again, not trying to be proud of it, but looking back at it, I'm like, that, again, cemented my position in that section to go, I felt like the boys actually had more respect for me after that. Yeah. I had to I had to spend the night in, in the watchtower and got a smack on the bum by the army and, and the, the, my punishment was you're not allowed to go back to, to Timor with the rest of your section. Oh, no so way. they all went back a week and a half later and I got stuck in Australia and Thank fuck, like the army being the army, the, the worse your um, crime, the better your punishment. Yeah. So they punished me by putting me straight on a mortar course. Um, <laughs> oh, no way. Which meant the whole battalion came back and all these blokes, like it's a bit different these days because they're fast-tracking people through stuff. But back then, like you're not, you, you don't get a support course for two, three, maybe mm. four years. So the rest of my section came back from Timor 
they're two, three, four-year diggers, no support courses. I've been in for 15 seconds, just finished a mortar course. Yeah. As soon as they got back, everyone then starts doing like support courses. I got hit up to do a, the fatties course as well, but I ended up pulling the pin because I went in New Zealand to play rugby. But, um, yeah, the, in a nutshell, me me getting in trouble on the piss from Timor, man, I did a mortar course, which then got me the golden ticket to Afghan in, in 2009. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, the, the support, so snipers and mortars were the first ones to get Put names on paper, and and that was that was me. Done. Yeah, got a mate, trip for yeah. being naughty. Mortars, mate. Mortars. Yeah. I was mortars as well. Three hour. Yeah, and I was mortars after about six months after getting the battalion. Same yeah. thing. Like, and it was just lucky. And then obviously, support company, we get to go to Afghanistan. So it was just, yeah. just one of those lucky things. So, so two thousand eight, you're basically just in Townsville, just training, exercises, blah blah blah. Yeah. So, well, well my career, I was in full time for six years. So. Um, East Timor and Afghan were the two main operational yeah. trips, but every year in the gaps, I was lucky enough to be playing Army or Defence Force Rugby. Yeah, right. So you're in the, the Rugby, Australian yeah. Army rugby team. Yeah. Sean Preston in there as well? Uh, I'd need to see a face. Yeah, you know I, his I, face. I darted dump names. Look, they're going to fashion. Actually, no, you might have went AWOL before. Different that. years too. Yeah. So so I went 2017 more, 2008 Germany and France playing yeah. rugby, 2009 That's pretty cool. Afghan, and right. then 2010. 10 New Zealand, I think, playing rugby. So, like, there was people that were playing in those teams in the two years that I was on ops with the Army and then um, that I never met. And But most of the faces in the rugby sides, like, they're, yeah. they're, they're normally from kind of cores that aren't – the infantry and the, the SF dudes only pop up when you can because it was such high-tempo operations. Exactly right, yeah. Um, but uh, blokes that are like Clarks and stuff, they're, they're, if there's nothing yeah. on, they just get to play sport. Yeah. It's the best job ever. Yeah, Mate, we we were it, it was a government funded piss trip to Germany and France so that we could pretend to play rugby. Yeah. We we actually played, <laughs> but that wasn't the main effort. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Australian taxpayers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So two thousand eight, then you deploy. Oh, sorry, two thousand eight is it? Two thousand two thousand nine. Sorry, yeah, so end of two thousand. Yeah, end of yeah. two thousand eight. We came back from from. From rugby, yeah. Gallivanting around Europe yep. and get straight into uh, MRE training and or they, they start throwing some rough names on lists and go, you boys are going to start training. Yeah, that's for MRTF2. Two. Two. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So how were you, know, how were you at that stage? And obviously you had your first deployment to Timor and obviously not, not it was, too it was eventful. A, but oh, mate, it, it, different kettle of fish. Like exactly. I, Timor was no mission rehearsal exercises. Like the, the other boys did them. I had no idea what that even meant. Mm. Um IET straight on the ground in Timor. Uh, but you can. You're lucky. In Timor, you can learn on the fly. Afghan, you don't want to go there straight out of IET. Like mm. You're in a pickle if, if you are because um, we we did six to eight months of, of training specifically for our job. So the boys that are um, in the omelets training the Afghan army, they're just doing those rehearsal ex- exercises. The boys that are patrolling and, and gunfighting, um, they're doing that. And we were just driving around high range for mm. six months dropping bombs. Um, mortars like supporting different different exercises. And now, I mean, you've got to be honest, like mortars is pretty fucking cruisy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's when you work, if you've got to carry your shit, you're going to yeah. work hard for a day, but then yeah. you do absolutely nothing for Mammoth a couple burgers of weeks. all night long. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good, man. Like, I, 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 I mean, everyone has their own experience in Afghan. I, for me, I, I think it's very similar to most of the lads. It's like being a pro footy player and, and sitting on the bench all, all your entire career and then finally getting the call up to be in the starting side. And it's like, we wanted, we wanted, I wanted to get over there and, and, and at the time, 
I, I truly believe that every person over there that was allegedly a terrorist was probably an evil at heart person. Yeah. Again, views on the world change. There is evil people out there, definitely. I don't reckon 80% of the kids over there that were fighting were, were evil. They were just looking for a paycheck. Um, but I, I got over there thinking everyone was bad other than the people that were there to help. And going out on patrol, mate, that, that was an emotional roller coaster. I was scared fucking shitless yeah. the minute I got off the plane. Yeah, you know, even before you know, before joining the military, did you even know where Afghanistan was? No. You know I mean, what I mean? Like, heard no, of the stands, of Exactly. We knew there was Borat and that was about yeah. it. You know what I mean? Like, that's the extent of it. That was the extent until you joined the military and you get over there. As you said, you thought everyone was a terrorist. Like, yeah. Then obviously you learn once you get over there, like, far out, those kids just come up to yeah. playing. Just wants to play. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I mean, that, that is how they, they I, I get it. Like, it's a survivability, like the model that we that we train on. SF boys are, are trained heavily to go and kick doors in and find bad guys. Most of the general army are trained in a way to prolong life. Like, we, yeah. yes, we've got a job to do, but realistically, strength in numbers means let's survive. Um, and, and that was the model of our training. And that, that was to teach you that everyone's a potential bad guy. Because if you believe that, you might shoot some innocent kids. Yeah. That's a bad story, but your survivability goes through the roof if you just assume everyone's potentially evil. Um, so I get it. I get why the training models are the way they are, but it also sends a lot of boys home with fucking chronic cortisol exposure to their brain yeah, because they're just anxious 24-7. Yeah. If you, teach, if you teach a person that everything's a threat, then they're going to walk around paralyzed by their own brain. Um, and, I mean, again, this is stuff that I learned after I left the military, but – Got over there, scared shitless. The first day we went out on patrol, went on this nursery patrol. It was just in the cars. Um, everyone takes their drills real serious yeah. for the first few weeks, and then you start to relax and and or get complacent. One of the two, both, yeah. But we mate, first night out, we went out. Oh, whatever the I can't remember even what the patrol base names are. We went out, whatever the first patrol base is up the valley. Um, stayed there for two days and went back. First night. Like I got to sleep for about 15 seconds and then the Afghan, the A&A bloke in the tower just starts opening up the machine gun. I'm like, get fucked. Every night in Afghan we're going to get in a gunfight. And I was like, no, he was just shooting at shadows and didn't <laughs> didn't have another tick for about three months. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the nervousness wore off and then you start to settle in and realise what it's like over there. And yeah. Try and, try and experience like a, a culture that – is nothing like Australia. No, exactly right. Yeah, biblical. It was good. It was, mate. Very. It was. Where did you spend most of your time? Marshall. Where's Cop Marshall? Where where at the that? time, up the Chora Valley. It was the second furthest oh, up, patrol base. Up near the Chora Valley. Yeah, so. Patrol base. Fuck. Because we only went as far as Baluchi Valley. That was it. What, what trip was that? 2008. Yeah, so at the time, did you hand over to 5-7? I think so, yeah. MRTF1. Yeah, so yeah. they they started building Marshall. Um, they put like the triangle barriers up. Yeah. They started building like the habs to sleep in. Mm-hmm. There was no showers, no toilets, and that. and so our job was to keep building that and and extend patrolling up the valley to start. I think they started building another base by the end of mm-hmm. our trip. Um, but it was I loved it, man. Like we you you need you need a bit of conflict in your life always, and in the military, if you're not fighting bad guys, then the conflict comes by picking on people from other units or, or <laughs> yeah. whatever. You know, like friend, yeah. friendly friendly. But there was. People that we, we knew were getting hot showers, hot feeds every night back at um, TK. And so at the time, you've got – that's a common enemy. It brings the boys tighter because yeah. you're like, well, let's fucking hate on them because yeah. we've got no showers yeah, and we're course, in yeah. But over the trip, like we started to build – you get job satisfaction like of, of seeing a patrol base get built while you're living there and helping out build a bit of the stuff. I mean, there's, there wasn't a great deal of job satisfaction on the ground for us. We Yes, on paper did some great things, maybe caught a few bad guys, but – 
it, it, I, I don't know. I, I didn't come home from Afghan going, fuck my role over there. If I wasn't there, the world would be a different place. Yeah. I'm like, realistically, I know this maybe not what listeners want to hear, but realistically, the job I did in Afghan, um, you could have got a scarecrow to do most of my jobs. It was yeah. just standing around doing fuck all. Yeah. Um, and we, we, I mean, we dropped bombs a few times. We went out, like I was saying earlier, we, unfortunately, we lost Benny. Um, Benny was in one of the combat teams. Is that uh, Ben Renato? Paul Warren, um, another good mate of mine, he was fairly new. He was a former Australian kickboxing or Muay Thai champion, one of the two. Um, fairly new to the Army at the time. He'd, he'd only been in for about a year or so. He got straight on this trip as a Rio in one of the sections, and unfortunately he went down um, to, f- to find a rest position, rolled over, his leg was on a mine, um, blew his leg off and killed Benny. It was it was next to him. So that was one of those things where you say, like, I, I loved the opportunity to go to Afghan. I, I didn't want to sit on the bench anymore. You want to get in it, but it comes at a cost. Like, we, we lost boys overseas and, and a few of the boys came back missing limbs. A lot of the boys came back with little little mental issues here and there. All treatable, but um, that, I guess that is that is the price of going to war. So there was it wasn't all positives. There was a lot of negative stuff. Yeah, um, no, definitely, definitely. And that, you know, that's a lot of things that um, you know. I guess as part of the podcast as well for our civilian listeners to pass on these stories because you don't get to see much of that. Yeah, you know, throughout the mainstream media, as you know, mainstream media is uh, the devil. Yeah, well, that's true. They, yeah. they share what they need to share to make exactly. money. Exactly, that's about it. The grind isn't is the grind of things is rarely compelling enough. For them. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And and it's the same with movies. Like the news doesn't want to read stories about an eight-month holding pattern. Mm. You can't you, – you compress for, – for what we achieved in eight months, yeah, you could probably make a movie out of it if you compress it into two hours. Um, but that's two hours over eight months, mm. whereas the rest – there's a lot of time doing, doing a whole lot of nothing. And there's a few negative stories, obviously. There's a lot of positive ones. But the, the biggest positive I took away from going to Afghan was just – Understanding what the real life in the real world outside of the Western bubble. Yeah, exactly. Understanding what people do in their day to day life. Yeah, yeah. And and how privileged we are oh, actually mate, here in the Western worlds you know, to wake up in a you know a queen size bed, yeah, comfortable. And these guys, you know, some of these kids are. You seen the kids? They come up to you and they're you know scraggly and you know malnutrition. Yeah, you know, far I don't out. have a lot, mate. But most of them are smiling, but that's mm. it. So you know, there's a lot of this, you know, all these protests, marches over here, and yeah, there's not much. For- yeah, mate, it, it, we've we've developed an entitled society, and and unfortunately, I think that if we'll, we'll progress into talking about mental health in a minute, but I think that is the the main cause. We've got this entitled society, and we have yes, post traumatic stress is a problem, and some. Of the, a small handful of the, the boys that go over actually get involved in, in gunfights or involved in scenarios that will be traumatic and cause post-traumatic stress. And I understand the definitions open up and there's 101 other reasons why you can get PTSD. But I think one of the biggest problems is we live in this entitled bubble-wrapped society where uh, Amazon, Uber Eats, Netflix, you can fucking stay at home and still be happy as a pig in shit mm. for a short period of time. You're going to be miserable long term. But you've got everything that you need. Maslow's two bottom um, levels of his, the hierarchy of needs, um, food and, and and shelter and security, that, that's covered. And then we need to find something to whinge about. So we start picking fights over stupid shit and you get overseas and you find these kids or these, these people like humans of all ages that have got – what we would consider nothing, like they're, they're they're shitting outside on their front doorstep because there's no toilets. They're they're finding food, eating rice most days. Like if they can kill a goat and get some meat, that's a fucking massive win. Like it's it's not a lot of food. There's no toys. There's no there's no nothing. And the kids are running around smiling and happy. Yeah, no, yeah. 
And it's got to lead you back and go, maybe we've forgotten gratitude in like the Western world. We, we're so used to having everything that it's not enough and we just keep wanting more and more and more. And then you bring in a few principles of gratitude and, and minimalism and you go, maybe the, the real path to happiness is having less stuff and, and worrying about less shit because there's, there's something in it. Like most Western or most third world, oh, sorry, most third world countries or developing countries have a higher happiness marker than, than people in the West. Dude, I saw it firsthand in the Solomons. Uber happy kids, smiles all around. We showed them a laptop. All of a sudden, we introduced one. Yeah. They wanted to see that fucking laptop all the time. That's all they ever asked for after that, that we created. Yeah. We created something, a need in them. Yeah. We created desire. And, and I, I was, even at 20, I was aware that we fucked this little system here. We yeah. These kids, because we've shown them a laptop. We've shown them a, a computer game on a laptop, thinking we were doing something. Yeah. Mate, that, that's so um, – and it, this this is something that we pay a lot of attention to because we are trying to solve – proactively solve mental health problems using a tech platform. Mm. And and you, you look through history, especially in recent history over the last two decades, most tech companies cause mental health problems. They don't they don't solve mm. them. Yeah. And what, what I'm doing – I don't want to talk about it too much because I, I haven't done enough research yet, but I'm going back and looking at like Sigmund Freud's work on like the ego and the id. And the id was essentially your, your natural – dopamine cravings or the things that you, your body and brain want to do um, to get dopamine and serotonin, which is which is your happiness chemicals in your brain. And before technology, that had to come from nature. It had to come from natural things, human interaction or being out in the surf, being out. In, yep. And those kids had that. And it's a slow, steady drip. And then as soon as you introduce rapid dopamine fixes like flashing lights, pokey yes. music, like com- yeah. <laughs> computer-generated noises, you get that. Um, closed loop where they know if I turn this thing on and press that button, I get a little buzz, but it makes me want another one in five seconds. And they go and go and go. And that, that creates that need or that want, sorry, for more toxic shit. Yep. Whereas we need to be in the West. We need, And I've got young kids now, so I'm super conscious of this. You almost need inoculate. It's a given, so you need elation. elation again. Yeah, well, I've got to be careful that works. I fucking hate vaccines. But, <laughs> yeah, we do. We've got to find a way to to. to I, I can't – like my two kids, three and five, I can't not give them devices yeah. full stop because yep. I, I'm also conscious of sending them to school and them getting picked on for being the only kid that's living in the 1400s. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, you put them in front of an iPad and try and take it away, whether it's five minutes or five oh, hours later, you are fucking at yeah. war. Yeah, that's and, every night for me. And it's, it's there's, there's something in our model, mate, I think – Western, so if, if we could explain what is causing mental health decline in the in in Australia, it is society. Not yeah, it's not individual things. It's it's the societal model that we've we've fucked it. Yeah, we've yeah. fucked it bad. So just before we start yeah. carrying on with, oh sorry, you go, mate. Sorry. You go. It's not to put us on a pedestal, but through our experiences, we fucking know better. Yeah, like we quite literally. Like yeah, my example. No, that's a literal. I feel like an anthropologist now. Let's see what we do to the natives when we show them a laptop. We fuck them up. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's exactly right, mate. And, and everything that we do, we, we look at peer-reviewed research and what scientists and, and psych students are, are researching. But most of our information starts with lived experience. It's like, what are yeah. you observing in life that we come, need to look deeper at? We come back to here and for all it's good, something's fucking amiss here. Yeah. In, and the irony is everyone here goes, what a shithole you just come from. I'm like, you know, fucking know what? There's some things about that joint that are better than fucking here. Absolutely. And that's what it takes, if anything the military's given us, and, and our, a lot of people. And number one problem, I mean, I love Americans. I love the people individually. Mm. I think their society is a the generating factory of 
societal problems because most of the shit that is wrong with Australia started in America. I mean, we, we've cut ties with, with the old British model fairly well, but now Britain's almost following the American model. And that's the problem. They American politicians, not American people, American politicians want to go in and, and solve problems in these developing nations. But they go in and they bring Starbucks and McDonald's and fucking KFC and all of the Western shit that's ruining our society. And we're yeah. like, this is how we'll fix them. We'll give them porn and fast food. Yeah. I don't know if that's the answer. I'm a senator. No country with the McDonald's has ever invaded America or ever attacked. That's true. That's yeah. true. Uh, they're all too. I, I think we've obese. we've started to dig down into this little rabbit hole, yeah. which also could lead into another different podcast down the track. Yeah. So stay tuned, There's listeners. A plug. Stay tuned. Um, so let's just drag it back to uh, being in the military. Yeah. The, the simple life. So obviously, you finish uh, Afghanistan. Uh, your deployment to 2009. 10. 2010, yeah. So we were there over Christmas. Over Christmas? Oh, yeah. shit. That would have yeah. been shit. Uh, I don't really like I'm not a fan of Christmas, mate, especially now I've got kids. It's Yeah. Getting back, back to, I won't go back down that rabbit hole, but it's all about plastic toys. No, it is, fucking yeah. yeah. Overpriced more, 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 plastic more. toys, yeah, yeah, that they just end up throwing out anyway. Absolutely, yeah. I'm not a fan. So, be um, so t- 2010, you get back from Afghanistan. How's the How's the mind, especially for the rest of the battalion? Uh, is it company plus? Company plus? Oh, uh, we ended up with company minus. Alpha Company. No, no, three. We, we were almost at full battalion strength by the oh, end. Oh, was of the it? Trip. So no way. We went. Alpha Company was a combat team. Charlie Company was yeah, gotcha. uh, omelet. So trainers, mentors, support had snipers and um, mortars, SIGs as well, obviously. Um, and then about a month and a half in, they they spun up Bravo Company as yep. a second omelet team and. So we, we had pretty much – I mean, we did, we never had Delta Company the whole time I was at 1RM. Yeah. So it was pretty much a whole battalion. Yeah. Battalion. So did uh, – when did you get back? Did you just uh, get straight back into leave? Did you did they force rest type thing? Yeah. We – I mean, like I was – we, we had a quick chat about this before. Andrew Hocking was our um, CEO at the time that brought us back. And, and going – we're there to say his name. He's, he's still in, but he's, I'm pretty sure he doesn't care. Yeah. Um, so we – because we went over Christmas, it was over a, a posting sock. So we went with – oh, I'm going to have to fuck him over the brain – um, what was their CEO's name? Pete Connolly. He'll kill me if I don't get his name right. Um, Pete Connolly took us over. Andrew Hawking brought us back. Now, Andrew Hawking was very heavy on, on digger welfare. So when we got back, I, there was there was horror stories of some battalions going to Afghan, coming back, going out bush straight away. And it's like, if they make us do that, I am out of the army yeah. tomorrow. We got back and Andrew Hawking was like, we're doing sporties for a year. We're just doing we, – we're going to do courses. We're going to send people and upskill them and yeah. we're going to do sport. Yeah, right. We're just going to chill. Smart. We got a new OC in 04. We all got back from the Solomon Islands and our new OC, the guy that sent us to pack, he, he did this, that. He was mm. like, we're going to chill. Sporties and fucking um, into, into bloody – we're going to get into the inter-holesworthy comps and shit like that. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we did. We just played sport. I got straight back into rugby. Um, a few of the boys – I mean, I, I had – by this time I had – well, by the time I joined the Army realistically, but I had pretty strong ambitions to go to Perth, SAS – and that was one of my main drivers when I got in. Um, and when we got back, I was talking to a few of the snipers and a few of the other boys overseas. They were training while we were over there, and they were going to do selection straight away. So they had a couple of months and then straight on selection. And I was like, at the time, I was like, fuck, I was only 23 or 24 at the time. I'm like, no, nah, I've got another year. I'll, I'll train properly next year. Kind of looking back, don't, no regrets, but looking back, I'm like, you are more motivated and keen to be green mm. when you get back from overseas. Nearly all of the boys that did it that first year got through. Yeah. Um, and then I did it, the, ended up, just going away, playing rugby, doing a bit of bit of army stuff, and getting ready and training to do selection the following year. Um, so mentally, from Afghan, um, I had no no dramas when I got home. And you're I only twenty three, twenty four. I think twenty four. Yeah, I got back. Yeah. 
So I, I had no, no, I had no head noise. And and this again, this this goes back to why I started thinking we need to reevaluate PTSD as our main problem for veterans' mm. mental health. Because when I came back, I had I had purpose still. I had another level I needed to achieve, and that was to go SF. Um, if I had got out straight away, like a lot of people do, that is a recipe for the disaster. Like, yeah, you, I did. Yeah, did you? I did. Mate, just straight downhill. This was, uh, you know, it's funny because I started bouncing the nightclub doors and I was just beating people up. Yeah. Like bad. Yeah. Just because it was just, you know, six months prior I'm in Afghanistan. Yeah. And now I'm on the door with civvies that don't understand a threshold. Well, that was, I mean, the first thing, one of the most, it's like stamped into my brain was um, we were the second last team out of when we left uh, Afghan, we went. We used to go through Kuwait. We went through, I think we were one of the first ones to go through Dubai. Um, and it's like a Caribbean park. All you boys know it's pretty fucking cruisy in, in Dubai. Um, but you haven't been on the piss with the boys. You haven't done anything. And so they let us out for a couple of nights on the, for two nights or two days. And they said, you can have a couple of beers at night when you come back. Everyone just went out and got, fuck, oh, a few of the boys got in pretty bad trouble. Kevin Rudd had to keep three of the boys out of an Abu Dhabi jail. Um, Kevin 07. Yeah. But anyway, like we, we came, so we were the second last to land back in Australia and then the day after was a few of my mates from the omelette. One of the boys is, is still in it to Commando now and I remember coming in, first night back, we just went out to a local pub, had a few beers because all the other boys were getting back the next night. Then we all went out, talked, mm. painted the town red and just walking into a nightclub after you've been in the Middle East for eight months yeah, and just seeing people like I, I – just looked at my mate's face when he walked in the door and it just went white. And it's like, I don't know what I'm, I don't know how my, what do I do with my hand? Yeah. Where, how does yeah. my body spoke? No, exactly, what am I supposed yeah. to say? It's like these people have just been here for the last eight months while blokes have been getting blown up and, and dying and they've just been doing, hitting the piss on Flint yeah. Street and going to yeah. James Cook University. So that was like a cultural shock to come back to Australia. Reverse culture shock. Yeah. Going back to the culture exactly. from its reverse. Yeah. Yeah, I've, oh, yeah, fucking oath. Well, yeah, yeah, so I'm sure we've all been through it. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But, yeah, I mean, in saying that, though, I didn't have, other than noticing that there was a few things that could cook you over time, I didn't have any dramas. And, and I look back now and go, that was because I had goals that I still had to focus on. Um, but if you don't, and especially like you said, if you leave the army – you're in a pickle because yeah. you don't know yeah. where to where to focus your energy or, or what you don't you, you don't have motivation to get out of bed because why yeah. would you? You used to be a warfighter and now what's next? Um, and that was it was a weird time, man. But it was I I, I don't like I, I'll say it over and over again. I don't any of the mental health issues I had from the military. I don't believe they were associated with a traumatic event from the Middle East. I believe it was a compounding factors that caused me to have anxiety. Pretty bad. Depression, not so bad for me. Like, I, I, I was sweaty mess, mate. When I got back, even in Townsville sometimes, like before I left the army altogether, um, we'd go out into crowded places and it, it wasn't because I was worried about bombs going off and it's not because I was worried about the crowd. It was social anxiety. In my head, I didn't – subconsciously, I didn't feel safe, secure, whatever, because I was in an environment that I didn't really like and I thought every fucking chick in the club was talking about me and I, it was completely irrational. Um, but yeah, other, other than that, mate, to answer your question in a 45 minute waffle, um, we were pretty good. We had a CEO that was good with, with sport and recovery and we didn't have a lot of, of, of work on. And so if the boys that stayed in, they, they were pretty, they were okay. Yeah. Right. So you, um, so you start training up for SF out West. Yeah. Uh, Did you get over there to do your training like, uh, selection? 
I did select. I went over on selection, um, and then left halfway through. So to give the full story, I don't like it. This can come off as an excuse, which I don't want it to be. It's just a true story. Um, I trained for the best part of a year, as you do to, to, to go SF, and it was. I was fit as fuck, mate. I was training with a couple of boys that had done it before, uh, and and that is the fittest I've ever been in my life. Then a month, well, six months out from selection, my sister gets cancer, um, and my family, being as the way the way they are, they don't they don't tell people what's going on when mm. there's shit going on. So my sister and my parents made out like oh, it's this little thing that'll be will we'll, we'll be coming right. yeah. in a month or so. Um, then a month and about a month before selection, she died. So I, I had a fucking bit of a meltdown, as you do when, when you lose a family member. Um, one hour at the time, still CEO was great. Put me on a flight back to Newey. He was like, mate, come back when you're ready. There was no – I could have stayed in Newey as long as I wanted. Um, but because I was training for selection, I went down and did the family thing for about two weeks, did the, did the funeral, uh, and then I was like, I've got to get back to Townsville. I've got to keep training for, for selection. At the time – 24 years old, I had no fucking mental coping mechanisms at all. I didn't even consider mental health as something I should be training, like building resilience to go on selection. And I just thought you've got to be fit and good at your job. And I thought I was, I'm, I'm good at being an infantry soldier and I'm fit as fuck, so that's all I've got to worry about, and just train and train and train. And I look back at it now and I'm like, that was a distraction technique to go, mm. don't think about the fact that your sister's dead, just train harder and you won't have to worry about yeah. it. And so um, SAS selection being what it is, it hasn't really changed in 30 years, so I'm sure they don't worry about people telling you what's on it. first 10 days is just all fitness stuff. Um, there's a bunch of different NAV bits. Most of it's just pump people with fitness until we, we cut the numbers in half. And that, obviously, being fit as fuck at the time, I was good. Like, nearly passed out in a few of the workouts, but I was <laughs> I was coping well. I was, I was performing pretty well on the selection course. Then they get to Happy Wanderer where you go and just walk by yourself for four or five days. And I forget, they, they changed the location. I forget where we did it, but we did it in a point where some of these nab legs, 20-odd Ks, it's just you look horizon to horizon. You're the only bloke out there and everyone's off in different directions. And I got made. I got to the point where I was okay for half a day, then sat down, don't sit down. As soon as oh, yeah, I sat down, I like started thinking, like started feeling guilty. Um, the, the big I – mean, the, the anchor point for me is when I went to pick my sister when she died, she was in Melbourne. She just um, – she'd been through a few different treatment kind of thing she had cervical cancer and then they got her she was doing a phd in sports science so i thought she was elite at human performance health and nutrition i thought she knew her shit um but doing what she was doing working with athletes they're just eating grains carbohydrates 24 7 and sugar's cancer fuel so she got to the point where she's like all right i've got to do something i don't think they can operate i'm going to be dead unless i go and do something and she went down to this clinic i forget what it's called um where they basically just give you organic food and 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 try and use diet to reduce cancer growth um but it was too late like she died the second day i think she was down there um i've completely forgot where i was fucking going with that story anyway i when, oh no, yeah. So I had to go when when I flew from Newcastle uh, from Townsville back down. I had to go straight to Victoria because that's where her body was, uh, and and I was there with mum and dad, and they're obviously a fucking mess. It's their first kid, their oldest daughter um, just died, and we got to the counter, the, the checking counter, to fly back to Newey from at, at, um, Melbourne Airport. My old man goes up and he's like, "Ah, oh, Sutter, there's four of us." I was like, "No, mate, there's only three of us." Like you don't you don't check a dead body into the fucking aeroplane. But the fact that his brain didn't register, like that 
was coming back to me and haunting me on selection going, yes, military is your life and that's all I wanted to do was go SF, but I'm like, maybe you got to go back and help your family out for yeah. a bit first. Um, and, and after fighting that, walking for half an hour or an hour or a day or whatever, then sitting down for a bit and doing that off on, off on, I got to the point where I was like, fuck this, pulled the pin, got off selection, went straight back to Townsville and said, hey, I need a compassionate posting um, back to Newey. And the, like I said, the CEO at the time was was happy to sign off on it straight away, put me on a plane, and then I was in Newcastle for two and a half months on an alleged 12-month compassionate posting. Got an email from Schema in Canberra. They're like, we need full tracks back in town, so we're going to book your flight next week. You're going back to your old job. So I just rang, I think it was the OC or the, one of the CSMs at the time, and I'm like, hey, I just got this email. I'm not coming back. Yeah. So what, what's, what are the options? Um, and they, they helped me discharge out of the army in a week. Oh, did they? Yeah, right. Yeah, which at the time is all I wanted. Looking back at it now, terrible process. You can't you can't be in the military and out in a week because that is setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah, without shifting gears, like that was what drew me to start Swiss Eight going. Without a proper training, six months of training to become a soldier, from a civvy to soldier in six months, that's achievable. A year would probably be better. But whatever the timeline is to convert a brain from being a civilian to a gunfighter, it's it's the same time required yeah. minimum, and that is like basic training is six in the morning till ten at night for six months, um, or three months at one place, three months at the other. So they need that level of of intensity to retrain your brain to be a civvy again. Yeah, right. And I, I think that's where we need to start focusing. Yeah. So 2010, you're back in Newcastle, discharged. Accelerated no, discharge, no, no, no. 2011. So 2011 I did selection. Oh, 2011, so, sorry. So end yep. of 2011, start of 2012 yep. is when I'm back in Newey um, and start of 2012 is when I'm officially out of the Army. Yep. Accelerated discharge. I met you uh, when you started that cafe. But, but same time. So that 2012, was it? Uh, end of 2011. I think I was, I, while I was on the Compassionate Postings yeah, when right. we started that business. Yeah, right. Um, See, I didn't know, I didn't know any, of the, well, any of that story. Yeah, right. Essentially. So I, the outskirts of it. I, I didn't know it at the time, but I, I look back at it and I know now that in I, I need to be busy. Like I need to be hustling. The biggest fear I have now with Swiss Aid and, and with these other businesses that I've got is that they are super successful. Swiss Aid, I want to be successful in, in the terms of solving problems. But if any of them become financially successful to the point where I don't have to get up and hustle every day, I'm in a pickle like because that's how my brain works. Yeah, so no. was, the minute I got out of the army and got back to Newcastle and I spent a month sorting some family structure stuff out, I'm like, I've got to start a business. And then like a dumb fuck started a restaurant. Um, <laughs> basically, you might as well just get all your money. Just good spot, put it though. A burn it was pit, good, spot. good spot. Yeah, it was a wicked spot. It was a wicked spot. Um, no idea. I just had no idea yeah, what I was doing. It was exactly. a very expensive yeah. tutorial on how yeah. to start a business. Hey, that's, that's where it all starts, though. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't have I couldn't have started Swiss Aid if I didn't start that. And then the second business I had was that meal delivery company. Yeah. I mean, that was where I learned a lot. Um, but the restaurant was all failures. Like it was the first year and a half, it, it was making money. Um, then we got one of our mutual known faces around you in, stole a bit of money. Again, that can just be an excuse because I, I left him in charge of that business. Yeah. So go and start another one. Yeah. I've got to own that and go, where did that business, first yeah. business go wrong? I, I wasn't paying attention. I was focusing on a different target while leaving someone there and not overseeing it. So that that's on me. But yeah, we made some expensive mistakes, man. But if I didn't, I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know yeah, safely exactly. how to run exactly. a charity. So, um, so Swiss Eight started. Uh, what year did Swiss Eight kick off? Twenty eighteen, we started putting ideas on paper. Twenty nineteen is yep. really when it kicked off. Um, so twenty eighteen, we registered everything, and then two thousand and nineteen, we started doing a bit of research. 
just behind closed doors with with different sample groups of veterans to find out what the actual problems were. Because you read, pick up any psych textbook that's been written in the last twenty years since nine eleven, and everything military related must be trauma, must be post traumatic stress, and that was. We, we found, I just looked at it and I'm like, I went to start seeing a psych uh, probably around a year and a bit before I started Swiss 8 and I was in there for 15 seconds, mate. And he's like, when when were you in the army? Where'd you go? Sweet. He already wrote PTSD on his on his form. I'm like, motherfucker, do your job. Yeah. Um, and so I went psych shopping for a bit and they the first two or three did the same thing. I mean, I, I look back at it now and I'm like, I understand why they do that. They want to get you treated as quick as possible, but- it's convincing young diggers that they've yeah. got PTSD. And I didn't think that was that was the main problem. I knew it was a problem. I didn't think it was the main problem. And that's when we started Swiss Aid and we started investigating, doing a bit of research, asking, just asking diggers, like, what caused your mental health decline when you left the military? And main four responses were tribe, routine, identity, purpose. So, and and disconnection from your tribe, That there's there's a lot of scientific data behind that. Um, anthropologically, like, like we were talking about before, you go back to when we were hunter-gatherers. If you get separated from your tribe, your your hunting group, you're not humans weren't apex predators back then. Like crocodiles, hippos, mm. lions, tigers, fucking everything's gonna eat you. And your chances of survival diminish rapidly when you get separated from your tribe. So isolation is not you sitting in a room by yourself. Isolation in your brain is you being separated from the people that are gonna back you, who've got your six. Um, and we've developed this response to go fight or flight triggers straight away as soon as you're isolated. And that that for mine, separation from tribe, you're going to war with boys who you know if you get in a gunfight, these boys have got my back, come home, completely disconnect yourself from them like I did. For the first three years, I didn't speak to anyone from one around. Yeah, yeah. Like a fucking idiot. And I was just an anxious, sweaty mess in any public scenario. I'm like, maybe this is something we need to investigate more than trauma. And it was. And we, yeah, like I said, we, we started doing a few surveys, a bit of research with some of the boys and found that the the best way that we could see to solve mental health problems for veterans was to get proactive, was to keep people connected to tribe, keep them in a healthy routine, make sure they've identified what their purpose in life. And, and then be, that becomes their identity. And if we can tick all those boxes and put it in a framework that's easy enough for people to understand, get them educated so that they can own their own life instead of Sucking on the DVA teat forever. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and that that's the model, and and we've been been running that. So it's a yeah. So the the in a nutshell, the app is a lifestyle programming tool. It's it's a, essentially could have been a productivity tool if we didn't want mental health to be the main metric that we we're tracking. But it's designed to go. People need to get structure in their life. They need to. We were in the military. We we're training at the same time every day. We we're at the mess at the same time. Um, we we had like three, six, 12-month schedules of like, what are our training programs? What are we aiming for? Is an Afghan trip coming up. That becomes our purpose. So we've got purpose. And I mean, just being in uniform is purpose enough. Mm. Um, and we've definitely got this tribe of people around us. So how do we turn that into a into an app? And we, we're like, all right, first thing we've got to do is get people back into a healthy routine because that changes your brain chemistry to the point where you can actually start listening to this educational message. If you get someone who's completely fucking cooked, like – an anxious or depressed mess and go, hey, I've got this educational package I want you to read through because it's, it's, it's all about mental health. Good fucking luck getting them to either read it or absorb it. So you've got to get some form of normality and structure back in their life and then start to slowly, like one percent is every week, just upskill, learn some new shit. Um, and then we, we, we run a few events and try and find ways to facilitate connection yeah. with people back hanging out with the boys again. Yeah, cool. There's no shit, mate. I, if, 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 and, and Donnie Spinks, he's one of the DVA commissioners. He asked me, he's like, in one line, in, in one sentence or one project, what would you do if you had unlimited budget to solve veteran mental health? And I'd like pay for fucking reunions. Get 
get if you want to spend four hundred grand on every digger that gets out and puts in claims, you got the money. Why don't we get defence and DVA to facilitate every year? There's a bucket of money. It's got to be organised by the diggers. Can't be organised by government because no one will go. But just give us funding, grant funding, or whatever, and go every year, every deployment group or every battalion, whatever it's going to be. You need to have a reunion at least once. Yeah. Keep the fucking lads connected. Definitely. And we start solving problems. Definitely. So Swiss 8 was started by obviously yourself and your brother? No, no. I brought my brother in later. It was I, – I, I, I was throwing ideas around, just trying to solve my own problems, and I mm-hmm. started talking to a few of the boys. Like Max was one of the main ones. A few of our kind of cohort got together and were like, all right, here's, here's my experience, here's mine. Let's use that as a baseline that we can test it. And so that's what I'd call like the founding group. Yeah. Most, mostly me and Max. Um my ex-wife's never going to listen to these podcasts anyway, but she was around from start from the, from the start of it, so she had a bit of a bit of a um, hand in the finger in the pie. Uh, but then when we separated, obviously she disappeared. She was a digital designer, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then when the app, we we paid these Bulgarian boys offshore to, to build the first app. Ended up costing nearly two hundred grand, and it came back, and it's like they're fucking good at their job, but just the cultural difference. Yeah. Like I would never use that app that they built us. Uh, and that's when I was like, after COVID hit, we were lucky. We, we got a bit of funding from BHP who, who basically said, hey, the whole country's going through this shit now. That what, what you talk about with veterans, about isolation and, mm. and routine failure mm. and uncertainty about their job, like that's what causes veteran mental health decline. The whole country's about to go through it. Yeah. So BHP gave us a little bit of money and said, can you open it up to the whole country? Unfortunately, they only funded it for a year. So we, we opened up this app to the whole country for free and then they stopped giving us money last year. But anyway, it's neither here nor there. <laughs> Um, but that's when we brought my brother on. I was like, all right, the Bul- I can't go back to these Bulgarians to keep fixing the bugs in the app. We need someone in-house. I need to build – Swiss Aid essentially is a tech company, tech startup, that our product is mental health tools, uh, and we need to start acting that way. So I brought Ben on as a CTO to start building out a development software team um, and then find some designers to replace the ex-wife, and, and he's been with us ever since. But I've seen, you know, obviously over the last couple of years, I've seen Swiss Aid blow up over social media. Just I found it interesting, just to cut in, I found it interesting that BHP approached you. A lot of what you're putting forward is there's two things I think of. Get the boys back together, get folks back together. RSL was correct generated organically out of groups, generating organically out of communities of wounded veterans and veterans being convalesced back home after World War One or during World War One. That's how RSL started. They all came together, let's create an entity here. That's obviously fucking, they've kicked that can down the road to what it is today that you have to sort of seek to restart it again, mm. which is a reoccurring example. Again, sub-branches were created by Korean and Vietnam War veterans because they weren't welcome in the RSLs themselves so sub-branches were created they went and recreated it for them again in their generation Mm. recreating it again in our generation corporate world or let's say the world approaches you to jump on the back of what you've created because they see utility and they see wisdom in it potentially but it flies in the face of everything everything that is promoted by the societies that we were speaking of earlier Contemporary society, be an individual, freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of this, freedom of that, being in, like your individual, do it your way. But fuck, actually, the science is in. People want connection, mm. not to fucking do things their own way. Yeah, mate, you, you're 100% right. And pull me up if I take this down a rabbit hole, because this is one of the, the observations that we're digging deep on at the moment. It's like human, as we evolve, um, humans, one, one faction of humans says that we're, we're evolving towards. Uh, conscious connection, conscious enlightenment to the point where maybe in 100, 200, 1,000 years we have some form of connection mentally so that we're all the 
just parts of the one organism. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that that's one model forward. And to go to be the to, to reach ultimate enlightenment, you have to treat other people as if they are an extension of yourself. And I get that, but at the same time, we're building a society that says there's 78 different genders, and it's all about you and your personal individual identity. Um, and that's that's the way we're heading on an actual trajectory to evolve to be completely segmented and separated from yeah. everyone. And with that, as you said, comes mental health decline because and the, we are- And the questions asked, is that deliberate? Because if you want to break down a person mentally like they're a prisoner of war or a prisoner, isolate them first. Absolutely. Well, so there's, yeah, there's that analogy is like, what do you, how do you treat prisoners as war? The worst thing you can do is, is solitary confinement, right? Yeah. It's one of the worst things. Yeah. Back in the day, um, when I say back in the day, 1400s and, and, and further back, the number one punishment was exile. It's like, if you, if you really, really, really want to make someone suffer, Leave them by himself. Yeah. Aboriginal cultures point the bone at them. You're out of the tribe. Exactly. That person goes off and dies. Literally, more than likely gets killed by another Boys. tribe. Yeah, yeah. I was actually talking about this the other day. The Aboriginals knew that if there was a man walking on their own in the bush, they'd been exiled. Therefore, it's a threat. Kill him. Um, wow. But yeah, like that. That is. We've known through without writing it down that isolation causes your brain to collapse. We've been saying it through through history because mm. that was their number one punishment. And now, I don't know if it's deliberate, man, I love a good conspiracy, but I don't know if, if people are – there's definitely a force at play that is pushing people to to want to have their own individual identity. And I, I don't know if it's deliberate or whether it's because of the, the collapse of the church being the, the primary model where everyone picked their team based on which religion they were. Yeah. And then we got nations and then everyone's like picking your team based on which country you're from and everyone back in the day was really patriotic. And all of that's starting to fade away um, to the point where people do want their own identity, but we haven't biologically evolved to the point where we don't need tribal connection anymore. So we can say, I'm not, I, I burn the flag. I don't want to be Australian anymore. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be that. I've got my own identity. I'm just me. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. But subconsciously, you're going to start developing your own tribe. And you do that. That's what you see with like Antifa and these woke yeah. factions. Or Everybody needs tribes, like whether it's your local footy team. For some people, that's their tribal structure. For for most people in the military, it was their military unit was was their tribe. Yeah. Um, and without it, our fucking brains start to, to fail. Yeah. Or, well, our mind rather than brain. I guess it's both. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting, mate. I don't know if we're going to evolve into connected collective consciousness or – individualized, everyone wants to fight each other and hate each other. I'm just uh, looking at the Suicide website. Yeah. Uh, up the top it says tribe. Mm. So that's uh, – oh, shit. i got a bit of <laughs> – <Peter, Peter laughs> okay. Someone calling from Melbourne. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, so obviously – you know what you've been talking about? Like you're, you're obviously very invested in what you're doing with Suicide, which is, which is super awesome because there's nothing worse than finding a product – that think you can help, that can help you, but understanding that the people that run it have no idea what they're talking about. It sounds like you've invested a lot of your time into learning, you know, the the, the basics of uh, mental health, through to you know what they're going to figure out in the next ten to fifteen years about mental health. It's going to be totally different what they know now. Yeah. So, um, well, that I mean, what that when you say what they know, that's that's the bit that makes me nervous as well. Is is like. So I'll start. I'll start here for context. Our point of difference: we we deliver, we create educational content so that people can. I, I should memorize our fucking brand statement, but our, our main effort is we create educational content so that people can 
build the tools or they can have the tools to make their own lives better. Um, and that's kind of it. And we deliver that through social media, yeah. through the app, through the website, and then through these courses that we run. But one of our main points of difference uh, compared to like Beyond Blues and all the other big organisations out there is they've got people who are qualified leader instructors from the Gudana Cert 3 and 4 in instruction, and they're regurgitating content that's been written in a book by someone who's a qualified clinician or psychologist. Now, I, I, I love scientific journals and I love learning new things as long as it's peer-reviewed and it's, it's legit. The problem I've got is they've had 20 years since 9-11 to solve fucking PTSD and they still haven't solved PTSD. Maybe we're looking in the wrong direction. So the Swiss 8's big point of difference is we first, before we come up with a, a, a theory or a hypothesis, it has to be presented by someone with lived experience. These ideas can't come from someone who's gone yeah. primary school, yeah, high course, school, yeah. university, now I'm a psych. Yeah. They've got to be people who have lived it. And then we we look for peer-reviewed research that can support that. And I know that sounds a little bit like confirmation bias, but we're taking ideas and observations of the real world from people that are living through these mental health issues. Then we're going, is there any science out there that we can read that can help us find solutions for it? If yes, then we, work, we merge those two together and we deliver the course material using those peer like those lived experience people because that that aim makes sure that we're not just regurgitating textbooks but it also means that if you come and you want to talk to me about mental health and you're a fucking looking the way you'd look tattoo covered fucking gunfighter I'm going to sit there and go I actually want to listen to what this dude's got to say if a 30 year old female nothing to do with gender but I'm not a female so I'm just trying to contrast myself as much as possible 30 year old female spent her entire life as an academic in, in universities knows every Every fucking textbook there is on psychology tries to teach me psychology. My brain is going to switch off in the first yeah, five minutes. Of course. So we need to be, we want to deliver it. We want peer created, like lived experience people creating this information and we want them delivering it as well. And that that's a massive point of difference. And just tying it back, when you say what they come up with, we, we do have to accept that everything in science, it's becoming a dirty word, yeah, like science. It is. Um, I learned that the hard way with fitness and food is the worst. They're, they're soft sciences because everyone's so different that the textbook's probably wrong for you, even if it's right for me. Um, I learned that with the food businesses that you've got to be careful the way you, how you use science. But when they say, hey, they're going to come up with new information and we need to be at the cutting edge at the forefront, 100% we do. But we want to be at the cutting edge going, all right, we've observed these things ourselves. Is anyone studying this stuff yet? If no, Normally, the military, the, the digger mindset would be, well, there's smarter people out there. I'll wait till they do it. We need to be the organization that goes, I have more, um, I have, there is more value in the information coming from these diggers with lived experience than there is coming with these psychs with 20 year careers. So if they say we need to investigate something and no psychs investigated it yet, we're going to reach out to universities and start pitching it to psychs and go, you need to start fucking paying attention mm. to this. Because, um, I mean, we're, we're seeing it with COVID. We're seeing it with everything. For every good scientific study, there's another team of scientists who have a polar opposite idea. Therefore, saying it's scientifically proven is a fucking throwaway line yeah. these days. Yeah, of course. Just, we've talked about this before, you and I, when we are down at that inner club, um, which, by the way, mm. for dudes that were ready for it, that's a perfect example of what you guys have put on mm. the table. Guys are ready to take that next step. Healthy as lean. Start a business. Yeah. Start a business. That's a great way to bring them together and give them a good start. But we were talking down there, like, okay, I sit down. I'm Digger X. I sit down. I feel like I feel like I've hit the fucking wall. The MO sits with you instead of just going, "Oi, um, going to put you down to J31. Go sit with the psych and go in to see this psychologist in Campbelltown, psychiatrist in Campbelltown, and he'll a shitload of meds in your face. Take them for six weeks and then see if you feel better." That's the fucking general route that it takes. It certainly took it with me. What you'd want to hear from that guy after what 
the lived experience and so forth, he sits down it's like he would. You would sit down with this doc, and he would have a training, or sorry, from experience or an updated methodology. All right, we'll check your gut health with your biome. We'll send you off to an endocrinologist, and we'll do a DNA check of your commonly prescribed medications. And that is where we'll start with your fucking treatment from here. We'll see where your body and mind are at right now. Mm. Then we'll fucking see those three. We were so, yeah, as we were saying. I know of those three from lived fucking experience of trying to find out because I always knew there was something fucking missing in my treatment. Mm. Mate, that's – yeah, so I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. We, we're releasing um, – we've, we've, we've been working on this app for three years, putting out content without – I don't know. There, there wasn't enough structure to go. If I was a – got to look for the dumbest digger in the room and go, is the SOP clear enough that they can get from one end to the other? And it's not there. So we're going to build this protocol. It's like a four- and an eight-week program that you download the app – do this first. And that's the first oh, – we can't go into that much detail, but one of the first things we're recommending to people is to go and get blood work done and just for nutrient deficiencies. And, I, I mean, when when I started um, all my DVA stuff and, and going through the – getting scans and get, going to see psychs, I'm like – I went to the GP and I was like, I want to get – can you write me a, a referral to go and get bloods done? I want to get nutrient levels. And, and they like, lost their minds. They're like, why? Yeah. I'm like, are you fucking serious? Yeah. Like 90% <laughs> of the problems with the human yeah. body, like – Diseases, viruses, 90% of them are caused because we're nutrient def- deficient in one yeah. way or another and our immune system can't defend itself. And so it's like- I, With that, I was just lucky. When I asked for my bloods to get sent on to an endocrinologist to take them to an endocrinologist, it, I was just fucking lucky that the endocrinologist I wanted to see in Brisbane is quite renowned and the GP that I was asking happened to be his sister. Oh, how good. She's just gone, oh, Christopher. Yep. Boom. There it is. Um, that was our <laughs> you know it's it's uh, you, you're 100 right and I mean this is the kind of thing that that I'm trying to push to DVA I'm lucky enough I could get a bit of a voice with, with DVA in the department sometimes we're trying to push to go if you're discharging you you do a med screen you do yeah. blood work you do psych yep. screens on the way in yep. do, yes do you do psych screens on the way out but do bloods on the way out yep. find out how unhealthy these people are before <laughs> you kick them out on their own because yep. some of this stuff like. It's it's not going to solve mental health issues, but it's going to have put a fucking dent in it. If your if your nutrient levels are optimal, um, and you're you're doing a little bit of movement, a little bit of training, those two things alone are going to stop you from getting depressed all day. And, and most anxiety is fucking chemical responses mm. to 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 lifestyle stresses that are amplified when your your natural biochemistry is out of whack. Um, which most of me, because most people are drinking Red Bulls and smoking durries all day in the cages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they get out of the army and they're like, how come I just got really fat and, and I'm upset all the time? It's like, don't blame fucking Afghan, yeah. mate. You, you're putting the wrong shit in your body. Get blood work. Go, what do I need? How do I need to change my diet? That'll solve massive amounts of problems. And it's so cheap. DVA could fund every single person, get blood work done. So we've got a baseline when you get out. Yeah, right. We'll see if they do. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, Swiss Aid's doing its, its thing for the veteran community and also not just veterans, uh, anyone. Anyone that's, you know, having the effects of mental health, especially over this COVID period. Like, I'm sure there's a we, – we have – obviously, they haven't released any stats yet because they, you know, it's not the agenda right now. Uh, but, you know, eventually it'll all come out and we'll see the, you know, the, the effects of mental health over COVID, which is going to be quite extensive. Yeah. And- for, for anyone who's not a veteran that is listening to this, just just be, be conscious of that because if you're aware – if you walk outside and you get hit by a bus, you get hit by a bus, you're fucked. If you walk outside and you know a bus is coming, you, you avoid the bus, right? And that's a pretty shit analogy. But if you understand that over the next year or so, you're probably going to have some mental health issues, like whether it be mild anxiety and depression. If you know that it's coming, it's, it's far less stressful than if it, you just wake up one day and your body's not working properly. So just be aware. Like we, we have COVID's 
ruined the mental space for most people. We, we, we're we scared of everything. Um, we're worried about – people worried about getting sick, just going to the shops. We've been forced into isolation for so long. Um, but because the whole country's been going through it together, you, you do – uh, delay some of the, of the course, mental yeah. health decline because yeah. if there's a crisis that everyone's going through that normally brings people together and you're all in it together and it actually strengthens the tribe once it finishes and all the free money goes away um, and, and people have to go back out and get back into their job and the world's going to be a different place so people just need to be aware that they are going to experience some kind of anxiety and depression at some stage and and if you want to get proactive about it the app is there it's free for everyone it's not just for veterans like every every service we say it has um, there is some stuff that we do sell, like courses and stuff. That's how we make money. But um, the apps there, if, if anyone wants to use it, just to set your life up. And yeah, right. So you head happy. to uh, Swiss8.org. Yeah. Correct. Otherwise, uh, people can find you on uh, socials. socials. Yeah, we've got – it's a mixed bag. It's either Facebook and Twitter's Swiss8 app and then Instagram's just Swiss.8. Someone stole Swiss 8 without the dot. I was pretty upset. <laughs> there's, there's nothing on there. It's a, it's a, just a quick one, touch on Swiss 8. Where'd the name come from? Um, all right. So the eight, there's eight pillars uh, of, of health that we build our framework around. So that's where the eight comes from. Uh, and then the Swiss, I mean, I, I talked about it before. I, I am, I have got Swiss heritage, but that wasn't, that's what made me start thinking about using Switzerland, but it wasn't the why. The why behind Swiss is Switzerland's been neutral through all wars. Um, well, in the last couple of hundred years anyway. Yeah. Um, and and they are known internationally as the the neutral country that just avoids conflict and and tax. Well, and, and there's a bit of <laughs> bit of tax. They get they got pretty high GST, but yeah. No, they so when when I started thinking about a name for this product, I was like, everything that I see in the ex service organisation space, it's all about. It's an it's an identity piece. It's wounded warriors or or broken heroes, and I'm like, there's there's all a they're all talking about being wounded and broken. I don't we don't like that because that's self fulfilling prophecy, you, you tell yourself you're broken, you're going to end up being broken. The other one is anything government related. So if, if DVA or if the Australian government's got their brand on anything, that's instant credibility destruction. People are like, fuck, no, I don't want this new app from the Australian government. They're not going to use it. So we want it. And then some of the boys, not a lot, but some of the boys were like, I've been out for five years. I'm not proud of what I did overseas. I wish I didn't go to war. Um, I won't go anywhere near anything that's talking about me being mm. a warrior, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, all right, how, how do we build a platform? We want to just remove friction and go, it's for everyone. It's a neutral platform. We don't, we're not encouraging people to come on here and fucking whinge about DVA like most veteran forums do. We're not encouraging you to come on here and talk about your political opinion about war. This is about fucking mental health and, and we're, we're neutral. So yeah. Switzerland made sense. No, that's cool. Not Swiss cheese. I like Swiss cheese. Nah, well, that well, that's so. There's, <laughs> there's got to be layers, right? If you want a good, every good brand name's got a main reason why they come up, and a couple of layers. Yeah. And our sub layers were everything that comes out of Switzerland. They're very proud it's people, good. and it's, it's got to be excellent quality. Yeah. So they've got great. I mean, their their clocks are pocket watches knives. are fantastic. Pocket knives. They don't make sense to me, but I get it. Um, they, <laughs> what do you mean pocket knives, mate? What about the ones with the tweezers? Had the tweezers in there? Yeah, just the format. The little, oh, oh, man, Leatherman's are so much so, better. Yeah. yeah. Um, like they got fucking Federer, for example. Yeah. Like you got a, when he got a tennis player like yeah. him, he's just a gentleman. And like that's and then trains, clocks, chocolate, like yeah. everything that comes out gold. of Switzerland. What's that? I just bought some uh, Swiss, Swiss gold. gold. Yeah. Well, mate, they got plenty of that yeah, hidden in the some, bloody. Yeah. They got they got <laughs> stockpiles of gold hidden in the tunnels. They have got enough food and accommodation in the tunnels under their mountains. Yeah, 
to support the whole country. Yeah. I think it's for two years. Yeah. But that was their fallback plan. World yeah. War Two when Hitler's Hitler was next door. Yeah. And he got he left Switzerland alone. And then yeah. there's reasons why we won't go into them because it ruins my narrative. <laughs> um but they were defendable. Bridges and mountains. Yeah. They can just blow it all and lock himself underground. Well, this that's away. where the names who say come from. No, I love it. I love it. I love what you're doing. And uh, obviously, you know, the mental as as we spoke about the mental health is going to decline, you know, statistically over the next you know, forever. Yeah. It's just, it's going to get worse before it gets good. It will, mate. It will. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sell the fucking bad news story, but we need to, to improve the mental health of the, the population of Australia as a whole, the population of the Western world. We need to change the societal structure. Yeah. We need to change what we value, what we, what we teach our kids. Cause nine to five that turns into a, an eight to eight job, five to six days a week to make money, to buy houses you don't need and cars that are fucking too shiny. Like the entire model doesn't make sense. To send blokes over to train fucking warfighters to go overseas and then come back to a country that hates warfighters and, and wants to put them all in jail, that doesn't make sense. There's there's societal structures that we need to change for people to be healthy and happy. And yeah. And in that, basic, sense, in that basic. sense, there's nothing new under the sun. It'll be a renaissance of something that mm. that worked effectively in times past. Uh, nature therapy, I think, is already doing I'm, I mean, I'd, I don't want to quote Rogan's podcast, but there is a society that that is like a hunter gatherer, um, subsistence hunting kind of society somewhere in the northern hemisphere. They did a, the a mental health, they bunch of K ten surveys or, or like mood, how's your life going? And they are the happiest people on the planet. And they have nothing, but they hunt and they 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 are in nature twenty four seven. Got the Okinawan population as well. They live the oldest and the happiest. They're called purple spots or blue spots. On the surface of oh, the Oh, yeah, the, yeah, the blue zones, yeah. Blue zones, blue zones. Yeah. Yeah, I'm reading about the Okinawans at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah some of those blue zones are and vegan, it's though, so I'll just, yeah. I'll just cut that out and don't read that bit. <laughs> <laughs> someone convinces me that veganism's good for you, I'll have to pay attention, no, but it, no, tried it. No, anyway, that's, a, I'll try it. that's it made definitely me another podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, mate, we've been talking for a good hour and a half. It's uh, been super insightful, especially the mental health side of things and what you're doing these days with Swiss 8. It's uh, definitely something I'm I'm get behind. Again, it's it's one of those organisations, charities that is has uh, you know veterans. When I say veterans, not just military veterans, but veterans within mental health, mm. they've had mental health issues, and they're teaching it. You know, there's nothing worse than you know. For me, you know, I went through my mental health issues, and actually, I'm looking through your your list, and Kieran Tui. He's a legend. Mate. He's uh, such a legend. I did basic. Yeah, and I know for a fact I spoke to Kieran Turi through uh, Open Arms. Oh yeah, he's, he worked. He's a, one of the peers at Open Arms. He did. Arms. Yeah, so I spoke to him for a good year. He just kept checking in on me. You know, when I was going through my little, uh, and you know, he's been through his his battles as well. So again, that's the good thing about Swiss Eight. You know, if you're going to get in contact and you know with your app, we know that it's come from a place where that place has been black. Mm. So we know it's going to, you know, it's worked. And I've used that app. It's great. Mm. There's a lot of stuff on there. Yeah. Um, so for the listeners as well, if you want to get on there and uh, donate, obviously they're a charity, so they're always looking for money to help, uh, you know, build their systems and, you know, keep keep the the good thing going. So there's definitely the the donate um, option. You can jump onto their website, Swiss, uh, swiss8.org. And uh, for Adrian, for our guests, we generally, or for Sutter, I should say, because we, uh, we have another Adrian here, um, we've got two final questions for our guests that we generally just ask. You know, all we want um, for the first question is, you know, what advice can you give to people to, um, you know, keep on keeping on? You know, the Joe Dirt, you know, life's a garden, dig it. Yeah. Um, you know, 
you've you started off, you know, as a bit of a grub here in Newcastle, and you know, you built your way up through the military. Had your your troubles through the military as well. You know, lost your sister, which would have been a turning point in life. You know, as it would be. And then you know, you had a failed business, and then moved on to you know a successful mm. you know charity that's helping you know people throughout the world, not just Australia. Yeah, mate. Um, one, I fucking hate giving advice because I, I don't know. I love talking to people until they come to their own conclusions with giving advice. But if, if one, the one thing, I mean, this is just going to steal the line straight out of Jocko Willing's book. But regardless of where you, where you come in life, if you don't take ownership for your own environment and your own situation, you are capital F fucked. Um, and that, that in business, like I was talking about with that bloke that stole money off us, that wasn't his fault. That was my fault because I, I overlooked certain things. When you leave the military, if you think DVA is going to give you a golden parachute and your life's going to be shiny and you think everyone else is going to solve your problems, you're in a pickle. You, you got to, regardless of what happens in the world, like if, if you are the most unlucky, hard done by person on the planet, you still need to own your own environment because no one else gives a shit about how you feel more than you. And that's, we, we, we're seeing it now with DVA and everyone's a lot of people want to be DVA haters and we, we, we're seeing it with the people blowing up at politicians about not being able to cross borders and, and blah, blah. It's like if it's outside of your control and you're still worrying about it, you're going to get anxious and depressed mm. and there's nothing you can do about it. Like I don't want to say give up and, and take the yogi philosophy of just accepting dog shit getting thrown in your face, but you, you have to own your own environment and go, if I really have a problem with ScoMo, Put a 20-year plan in place to become Prime Minister, champ, or stop expecting the government to solve your problems because nine times out of ten, they do the wrong thing and fail. And the only person that gets the shits is you because you were leaning on them. You thought they were someone else was going to solve your problems for you. Every problem you have, every win you have, every up and down, yin yang, it's all on you. So you've got to own your own space. Yeah. Um and 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 train change as much around you as you can, but don't blame outwards. You can only blame. Yeah, outwards. no, exactly. Just do it. Mm. Just get it done. That's that's yeah. I, you know, I look back to the brand Nike. You know, their their slogan: "Just do it." Like, yeah. just do it. If you want to make see change, just do it. Mm. Try. You know, what what do you got to lose? Kieran Tui's actually what well, on that really quickly. Kieran Tui bring, brought up a break a break great point when we were doing a podcast with him. He was like. We're so worried these days, especially in the mental health space. So people, everyone's so worried about fucking up and losing someone to yeah. suicide. It's like if I'm their clinician and I do something wrong, they fuck up. And so they're, they're, they're so cotton woolish, and it's all like, oh, what? These are the safe spaces, and what are your trigger words? I don't want to step on your toes. He's like, when he was in his hardest, roughest point, like this darkest hour, his older brother came. He's like, get the fuck up, mate. Yeah, no, no one's going to fix yeah. your shit but you. And he's yeah. like, that is what I needed. Yeah. And I think a lot of blokes from knock around backgrounds need that. 100%. The cotton wool approach doesn't work. Yeah. So give them a kick in the ass and then don't, don't make them feel like they're being ostracized. Give them a kick in the ass and go, go out and fix your problems. Yeah. No, exactly. It sounds simple. But it is. It sounds simple. Of, but- yeah. Um, no, good, man. I, I like that. How did you like that, Afriz? That was uh- – of, oh, are, you, are you motivated? Are you motivated? <laughs> There's um a lot of a lot of themes that ring true, man. A lot of um resonant bloody uh ideas in there as well. But again, this other idea that we got with podcasts, I think we're going to touch on a yeah. lot of this in quite a deep. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, mate, the second question: Where does uh, Adrian start to see himself with the future? No, I wouldn't say a five year plan, but you know, obviously, Swiss Eight's going to be. Taking uh, different directions oh, and, that, you know, stepping it up or not? Just in a sub-question, what's your metric for success with this? Um, so – What's the day that you're like, fuck yeah, it worked? Solve suicide. 
It's I, I say that in rooms full of psychiatrists, and they they tell me I'm not allowed to say that. Like you can't fix it. It's not a problem that can be fixed. I'm like. If your metric for success is not zero suicides, then you're fucking aiming too low. Like, it might take us 500 years to get there. I I won't be alive potentially when we get there. But unless our metric is end it, like, and there's there's an elastic scale of what we think is good, better, and best, um, but that is our metric for success for Swiss Aid is to build a model that ensures that people have the tools, they're educated, they understand how to structure their life so that mental health decline becomes a thing of the past. And I mean, that, that to break that down into actual achievable goals, we're working now content delivery and educational content delivered in a way that people knock around dudes actually mm. want to absorb it is our main focus this year. Yep. Um, we want to get a new program on the app every fortnight because we know people get bored and they get, unfortunately the last two years through COVID fundraising for a charity has been a bit slow. So that, that has been a bit of a trickle feed, but that's our goal this year. Then Ben and our, our tech team start working on the artificial intelligence model uh, later this year, which means users of the app will have biometric feedback from, from wearables. I'll have reporting dashboards on what their sleep, their recovery. There's, there's companies like Whoop out there doing it now for physical performance, but we're drilling down on all of the mental health metrics and data points. And we'll get to a point where the app can predict that, like, if you, it'll give you a notification going, you need to start meditating for an extra five minutes a day because you're on a trajectory that in six months you're going to have depression mm. um, and, and a predictive model. And I believe that over, if we can take that, it'll take three years to build that. And if we can expand that over time to the point where you've got a essentially a life coach in your pocket. I'm giving away ideas. Here's someone, Facebook will probably rip it off, but it doesn't matter because if they do it properly, they'll, they'll solve suicide. But if you've got a life coach in your pocket or whatever the next 10 years of funds yeah. look like, yeah. telling you, hey, bro, your, your heart rate, your cortisol levels are currently doing this, you should go to the gym for half an hour. Like that, I believe we can get people to the point where we can prevent depression to the point of suicide. Yeah, violation. yeah right. That's interesting. I built I built a pitch deck last year, end of last year, because of there was issues with government and, then, and them not wanting to fund tech because they're starting to change their tune. Last year, politicians want to fund bricks and mortar because it's really good for photos in, in elections. Yeah, um, and we said, hey, we have got this AI model. It's going to be predictive. No, we we partnered with Newcastle Uni. No one on the planet's built this thing yet. Um, and then I, I was like, all right, funding for this is going to be tough because to, for a charity partnership with a uni. Uh, the uni has to pay for everything. So with COVID, Newcastle Uni's got no money. So they said, hey, we're going to scrap this for at least another two years. I'm like, I need to fucking raise a million bucks to start building this AI product. Uh, and I started working with investors and, and put together a pitch, went out, and we got we got a bunch of um, money men in a room. They're like, all right, we'll put – and even some of our athlete talent, we're going to throw money in. I'm like, this could be a, a successful business on the side. And then within fucking 48 hours – main investors started telling me how they wanted to change the product to do X, mm. Y, and Z. And I'm like, cool, I'm not, I'm building this through yeah. the charity. Yeah. When this could be a billion dollar idea. Maybe. I mean, everyone's yeah. got a billion dollar idea, but I'm like, it, that's the reason I started Swiss Aid as a charity in the first place. Cause no one owns it. And therefore no one can tell us that we have to stop giving a fuck about X, Y, yeah. and Z. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, there was, there was an idea. It was a model there that we could have thrown some investment money behind, but I think it's got to be done by the charity, man, or, or it gets murky. Yeah. Too quickly. Yeah, right. You know what would be, um, I was just thinking, you know what would be good? You know, I run a quite a large security company. I pay a lot of tax. I can be- help you with that, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like, wouldn't it be good if the government just said to you, you know, half your tax can just go to a charity? Well, they do. I mean, they give you tax deductions. Yeah, of course. But you know what I mean? That's not the same. No, it's not the same. No. You know, rather than them taking it and taking flights to France, I don't know, first class. 
Well, that's, I mean, that, that is a model that got pitched mm. uh, a decade ago going, all right, if we are going to pay tax, if I pay, hypothetically, if you've got a business, a couple hundred grand a year, if you're personal tax, 30, 40 grand a year, I want to tick the boxes of where that money goes. Yeah, that'd be great. And if the whole country's like, hey, yeah. we need to invest, I want 50% of my tax to go to mental health yeah. research. That's it. Bang. And, but the problem is then you get like that's it. all of the fucking lefties yeah, oh, are yeah. like, I want zero dollars to go to that's defense. It. And then you've got boys yeah. in Afghan with fucking yeah. paper plates as plate carriers. Yeah, oh, we had that anyway. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we, we had the budget. We still didn't get nothing. Yeah, true. Oh, monkeys. Uh, yeah, sweet, mate. Well, um, again, appreciate you coming on. We've been friends for a long time. Okay. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to see where this all goes in the next few years. And, you know, I'll, I'm, I'll, you know, I'll get behind as much as I can. Mm. And I'd love to host one of these barbecues. Like, I'm I'm down for this. I'll, I think Newcastle needs something. Newcastle definitely needs something. We need yeah, a barbecue. We're refreshing. Yeah. And that, that was one of those ideas. There's already um, the peacekeepers and peacemakers. Are, are we, we're going to work with them. It's not like they're idea thieving. They're, they're, they're great dudes. And they're going to do a barbie on Australia Day as well, I think. Are they? Um, try and make that a veteran thing. We'll see how it goes. Is that this year. in Newcastle? Is it all? Oh, we'll make one in you. I think they're all over the place. I think as it'd well. be great to do something in Newcastle. But definitely, there's a whole bunch of veterans up here, and you know, uh, you know, throughout all of us, we've got a lot of friends that are yeah. going through these uh, mental is- health issues. And, so. and the barbecue concept for us, I mean, we we want people to come and do fundraisers if they want to do fun runs and marathon, whatever. That's all cool too. But our main effort is Remembrance Day, just trying to reinvigorate Remembrance Day because we thought we we're worried it was going to get lost off the the calendar, and so we do barbecues every Remembrance Day. For yeah. Well, and I think this year, last year we were trying to. See how the concept like grew. Um, this year, we'll let our volunteers and tribe members sort those ones out. And my main efforts, Coogee and, and Newcastle, yeah, just have a big event here because yeah, hundred percent. There's a lot of the boys now that you boys are here. I reckon Newcastle's becoming a, a bit of a hub for it is, mate. There's a lot, dudes. there's a lot, got, a lot of guys up here, as you know. A lot of the Raffies come back here to, to retire yeah. as well. They love it. They come to and a few people from Singo come Singo. back to Newy. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's heaps. Out. There's heaps popping up. There's a dude like boys from work. I live in, and he's in Mork. We're both in Mork. Places you could come and settle. Mm. He's uh, yeah. So there's people around. Yeah, would work. Oh, sweet mate. Well, Dang. thanks for coming on, and yeah, thanks for having me. I love yeah. a good, love a good waffle. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, listen, stay tuned. There could be another podcast coming out. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of a, a rubbish talk one. We can just no go off script. One. Yeah, go off script. Now, awesome, mate. Appreciate it. And Humphreys, thanks for uh, casting. Thanks, mate. No it's Good to be here. Awesome. Catch you later. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However... Lately, I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it get your discounts. So again, jump onto 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.